It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 361st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be checking out a fort up in Delaware, Fort Delaware. (laughs) Sounds like a good time. This was suggested to us by our listener, Anthony Ramirez. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Joanne, Michael, Shelby, Priscilla, Jonathan, Fred, Corey, Bob, and Alan with two L's. Thanks for joining us in the crew. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. Inside Steve Jenny's refrigerator, one will find a Muscleman's applesauce jar with a half-eaten sandwich wrapped in a plastic bag inside. Seems pretty strange, but it does contain a bit of a treasure. Steve was a 14-year-old Boy Scout on September 22, 1960, when his troop was asked to serve as an honor guard for a very special visitor to their town of Sullivan. President Richard Nixon had come for a visit. The president was scheduled to make a speech at Wyman Park, but before doing that, he was served a barbecue buffalo sandwich at the cookout, where Steve was serving as an honor guard. He tells the story this way. He took a couple of bites and commented on how tasty and how good it was. Once he left, I just looked down at the picnic table and everybody else was gone, and that half-eaten sandwich was still on the paper plate. I looked around and thought, if no one else was going to take it, I am going to take it. He took it home to his mom, who asked what she was supposed to do with it, and he told her to freeze it. So she put it in the plastic bag and in the jar, and for 60 years it has been frozen with a label that reads, Save! Don't Throw Away! The sandwich even got him an appearance on The Tonight Show in 1988. Keeping President Nixon's half-eaten sandwich in the freezer for 60 years certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. And now, this month in history. (music) 
speaking of President Richard Nixon, in the month of November, on the 7th in 1962, Richard Nixon gave his so-called last press conference. Nixon had run for governor of California against Democrat Pat Brown in the 1962 California gubernatorial election. The state had traditionally been a Republican state, but Governor Brown was an incumbent, and he won. Nixon sat before a group of 100 reporters at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, a displeased man. He angrily told the reporters, You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. As history would later prove, this was definitely not his last press conference, and certainly not his most famous one. Experts believed he had permanently damaged his political future, but he won the presidency in the 1968 election. This was a nearly impossible political comeback that would later end in Nixon resigning the office because of the Watergate scandal. Nixon wrote in his memoir, I've never regretted what I said in the last press conference. I believe that it gave the media a warning that I would not sit back and take whatever biased coverage was dished out to me. I think the episode was partially responsible for the much fairer treatment I received from the press during the next few years. From that point of view alone, it was worth it. Fort Delaware started as a defense for the Delaware River on Pea Patch Island in Delaware. During the Civil War, it would serve as a prison camp for Confederate soldiers that was considered a death camp. The fort would also be used during the Spanish-American War and the World Wars. Today, it is a state park featuring reenactments, tours, and other events. Many groups have investigated there, including Britain's Most Haunted, Ghost Hunters Academy, and Ghost Hunters used it for one of their Halloween episodes. Join us as we explore the history and haunts of Fort Delaware. Patch Island was surveyed as a military site by French military engineer Pierre-Charles L'Enfant in 1794. How the island obtained its name is a bit of a legend. It was said that it was the site of a shipping accident in the mid-1700s when it was just a large sandbar. This ship was carrying peas, and the crew knew that they could not get free from the sandbar unless they offloaded weight, so they left the cargo of peas on the island. The peas rooted and grew and latched onto more silt, and the island grew. Thus, it was called pea patch. So I don't know, Kelly, if that's really what happened here. It's very unique. I love that story, actually. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many boxes of peas they left behind if it would actually <laughs> be enough to cause an island to grow, especially big enough to put a fort on. But I don't know. I mean, maybe they just grew like weeds. It makes it fun. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know where else you'd get pea patch from. I'd wondered. That's such a strange name for a island. I do wonder, does it have a bunch of peas on it to back up the story at all? <laughs> I would imagine it probably does. Well, whether this legend is true or not, one thing that is true is that a New Jersey man by the name of Dr. Henry Gale owned the island as his private hunting ground when Lanfont suggested it as a military site to the United States military. Dr. Gale had no interest in giving up his island. He should have taken their offer of 30000 because Delaware got involved at the military's request. And after some political wrangling, it was found that New Jersey had no right to deed the island to Dr. Gale and that the Delaware River and all the islands within a 12-mile circle around Newcastle's courthouse were owned by Delaware. So Delaware says, this is our island. So then they ceded it to the United States government in 1813. And the government sent Dr. Gale packing with no payment. 
So Too bad. So sad. I know. I'm like, you should have just taken the money, man. No fort was built right away, but the island was fortified during the War of 1812 with a seawall around the island. A wooden fort was originally begun in 1814, but a more permanent fort was begun in 1817. The design was a star shape. I thought that was really unique because I don't know that I've seen too many forts that are in the shape of a star. Seems like it would be easier to defend. Yeah, and I mean, it's not that much different than having a, a pentagonal shape. It just had, I guess, the points on it were a little bit more drastic. I guess so. This fort was designed by Army Engineer Joseph G. Totten, and construction was supervised by Captain Samuel Babcock. The first commander at Fort Delaware was Major Alexander C.W. Fanning. A later commander was the older brother of President Franklin Pierce, Major Benjamin Kendrick Pierce. Now, one can imagine that the island was not a good place to build upon if it really was a sandbar that was loosely held together, and that would prove to be true. The land was very marshy, and shortly after the Star Fort was completed, it started to sink. You can just imagine these guys building this fort and then going, you know, it seems like it <laughs> dropped a meter, and then oh, another, and another. How terrible. Even before completion, a section of around 43,000 bricks had to be taken down and the concrete removed and then replaced because of huge cracks that developed. The Army Corps of Engineers was working on a plan to stabilize it when a wood stove in Lieutenant Stephen Tuttle's quarters set the wooden wall of his room on fire in 1831. The fire quickly spread to the rest of the fort, and it was a complete loss. An interesting story connected to the fire claims that Major Benjamin Pierce's wife had recently died and was in her coffin in the fort. Pierce risked his life to save her coffin and body. The garrison at the fort had to walk across the frozen Delaware River to Delaware City. Yeah, so they're like, I don't know what we're going to do to try to save this fort. And this Lieutenant Tuttle that was out there had actually been head of the Army Corps of Engineers. So he was kind of in charge of checking out what can we do to fix this, to stabilize it. And then his room just happens to catch on fire. I don't know if it really was an accident or what, but... And then the rest of the guys are all left to walk across the icy river. <laughs> Good grief. Doesn't sound like it was really meant to be. No. A new man was brought in to design a new fort, Captain Richard Delafield. His design would take on a polygonal form with bastions built from brick. This fort was to be much larger, and Delafield proclaimed it would be a marvel of military architecture. What remained of the star fort was torn down, and the rubble was used to reinforce the seawall. In the middle of laying down the base of the fort, Dr. Gales, you know, the guy who had this as his hunting ground, his descendants come along, and they claim that they had legal right to the island. A decade-long legal battle ensued, so the new fort would have to wait to be completed. The legal fight got so big that President James Polk had to get involved, along with the Secretary of War. In the end, it was ruled that Delaware did indeed own the island, and the title given to the U.S. government was valid. Can you imagine this big battle over this went all the way to the president? No, I can't. Delafield's fort would never be completed. A new pentagonal-shaped fort was designed by Army Chief Engineer Joseph G. Totten, and the construction was supervised by Major John Sanders. The Pentagon was slightly irregular, and each corner had a tower bastion. There were 4,911 piles driven into the compressed mud to solidify the base, so apparently they all finally got together and figured out, how are we going to build something here that's going to last? A little bit better engineering. Yes, and clearly it worked because it's still there today. The masonry consisted of granite, brick, cement, and gneiss. Have you ever heard of gneiss? It's G-N-E-I-S-S. Actually, I haven't. It's a metaphoric rock made from mica, feldspar, and quartz. I'd never heard of it either. I wonder what it looks like. 
It kind of looks like um, black and white. I would almost say it looks kind of like granite in coloring. I but was you can say just, like DG. Yeah, it's like granite. Yeah, it's like black, white, and grayish colored. It's kind of cool. The problem is this type of stone was not used much because it proved to be very difficult to cut and it slowed down construction. So that's why they started switching over to the granite. I think they started with this and went, this is taking forever. So they managed to get some granite. Bricks were used to build the soldier barracks, underground cisterns, officer quarters, casements, powder magazines, bread ovens, and the fort's breast high wall. As is the case with many of these types of forts, masonry arches were used to provide stability. Most of the construction was completed before the Civil War, but it was not officially declared completed until 1868. And as I said, this is the fort that stands today. Major Sanders died during the construction in 1858 from a complication of carbunculus boils. Ew. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. I I can't think of a grosser way to die, and it must have been horribly (sighs) painful. Yeah, I would imagine. The Civil War would be the time when Fort Delaware would get its most use. The fort was fortified with lots of firing power. The seacoast fronts of the fort alone could house 123 heavy cannons. The bastions could hold another 15 cannons, and they also had 20 short-range howitzers. The long rear front gorge wall had 68 loopholes for musket firing. As an added protection, the fort had a moat. Captain Augustus A. Gibson took command in 1861. Despite the fort clearly being a place of firepower and defense, it would basically just become a prison. Yeah, I was so stunned when I was researching this. And I'm like, this is going to be a heck of a fort to have. And then it basically was just (laughs) used as a prison. It didn't really see any battles or anything like that. And I was like, oh, my gosh. After all that. Yeah. This became a prisoner of war camp for Confederate soldiers. But it also held pirates, political prisoners, and federal soldiers convicted of crimes. Some of the Confederate soldiers left their marks behind on the walls of the casements and powder magazines where they were held. And you can still see those today where they scratched into the brick and such. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the fort contained an average population of Southern tourists who came at the urgent invitation of Mr. Lincoln. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Lincoln has a place just for you. (laughs) Confederate Brigadier General Johnston Pettigrew was the first Confederate general to be housed here. About a dozen more would follow him. During the war, a hospital was built inside the fort that had 600 beds. Barracks that were basically wooden sheds were also added and were said to be able to hold 10,000 people. Bunks inside were arranged in three tiers. The death rate for prisoners was 7.6%, which we guess for the time and conditions is probably pretty good. But still, you don't want to have a 7% death rate, really. No. The main cause of death was an epidemic of smallpox that came through in 1863. Others died from malaria, scurvy, pneumonia, dysentery, and erysipelas, which I had no idea what that is. When I looked it up, apparently it's a bacterial infection of the skin, also known as St. Anthony's fire. Hey, it sounds lovely. Yeah, if they're calling it <laughs> that, I'm breathe. like, it must burn and not feel good. Yeah. And obviously it's bad enough that it can kill you. The first Confederate prisoner to die here was Captain L.P. Holloway. And he was given a full Masonic funeral by Jackson Lodge in Delaware City. A total of 33,000 prisoners were held at the fort during the war. Many of the people who died here are buried at Finns Point National Cemetery in Pennsville, New Jersey. Their bodies were taken to the cemetery via a slow-moving barge that was called the Death Boat. Life was actually fairly good at the fort. Yeah, so even though they called this a death camp, I don't know that I would have called it that. I I mean, maybe because you had some people dying there. But when you think about Andersonville and the stuff that happened there, this place was like the Hyatt. 
<laughs> okay. Prisoners got two meals a day and were allowed to purchase extra food. Meals usually consisted of a small piece of meat, three hardtack, and bean soup. Rations were cut for a short time by the War Department because it was mad about how their northern prisoners were being treated by the Confederates. So he said, we're hearing that you're treating our guys pretty badly, so we're going to start cutting back some of their rations just to stick it to you. Lovely. Captain Robert E. Park of the 12th Alabama Infantry Regiment described eating at the fort in this way. The mess room is next to Division 22 and near the rear. It is a long, dark room, having a long pine table on which the food is placed in separate piles, either on a tin plate or on the uncovered greasy table. Ew. <laughs> yeah, ew. At meal hours twice a day. The fare consists of a slice of baker's bread, very often stale, with weak coffee for breakfast, and a slice of bread and a piece of salt pork or salt beef, sometimes alternating with boiled fresh beef and bean soup for dinner. The beef is often tough and hard to masticate. I just love this is a prisoner who's describing his meal and he uses the term masticate instead of chew. (laughs) It was hard to masticate. I would imagine the heart attack was even more difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess I shouldn't have called this like it was like the Hyatt because hardtack. Ooh, have you ever had hardtack before? I have not. I don't think I'd want to be gnawing on that for a while. It's I mean, just you have very to like, keep hard. chewing and chewing yeah. and chewing and it's hard and dry. Yeah. Get lots of saliva going to get it down. <laughs> After the Civil War, the prisoners were released and a small garrison of the 4th U.S. Artillery was left behind. A large hurricane hit in 1878 and destroyed the buildings on the south side of the island and a chapel built by the Confederate POWs. A few years later, a tornado took out the hospital and did more damage. New guns and batteries were added before the Spanish-American War. This would use the new Endicott program created by Secretary of War William C. Endicott. This system spread batteries over a wider area and concealed them behind concrete parapets flush with the surrounding terrain. The new guns had a range of 10 miles. I thought that was pretty good. That is pretty far. The three-gun battery here was one of two three-story Endicott batteries in the United States. During the Spanish-American War, the 14th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry Regiment was stationed at the fort, and it saw no action. During World War I, Fort Delaware was a backup fort. Soldiers started dismantling the fort at this time and burying some of the guns. I thought that was interesting that that's how they would take care of the guns instead of trying to ship them somewhere else. They just buried them in the ground. Right. I guess just to be able to come back and dig up later? I guess because eventually they did come back and dig them up. I wonder if that's just how they would plan it. Yeah, I don't know. It's just very interesting to me because I would think it's not conducive to, I don't know about cannons, but firearms and stuff like that to have sand and everything. Well, maybe they wrapped them a certain way. Maybe. World War II would find Battery C, 261st Coast Artillery Battalion, a unit from the Delaware Army National Guard, garrisoned at the fort. By 1942, the last of the guns were removed from the fort, so it was unarmed. The electrical wiring was stripped out as well, and at the end of the war, it was used as surplus. So to me, it feels like they were kind of dismantling the thing ever since the Spanish-American War. Sounds that way. Since the government decided that the fort site would just be surplus, the state of Delaware took back the site in 1947. They transformed it into Fort Delaware State Park, and they run a seasonal passenger ferry to and from Peapatch Island. They offer programs, reenactments, and the thing we always love when it comes to forts is the firing of weapons. I just love it when they fire the cannons. I I don't know why. I'm such a kid that way. I got such a kick out of it when we were in St. Augustine, and they did that with the cannons at Castilla de San Marcos. I know. That was so cool. This one is an eight-inch Columbia gun. The island is also a migratory bird rookery, which is the largest such habitat north of Florida. 
They host a triathlon in June as well called Escape from Fort Delaware. It seems that 52 men escaped from Fort Delaware, and the path they took is the one followed by the triathlon. It is closed for the season and will reopen in April 2021. We wonder what the ghosts do when all the people are gone, because clearly there are real possibilities of hauntings at Fort Delaware. I would love to pretend that I was a prisoner fleeing from the fort. I don't know that I'd want to do a triathlon. I was going to say, you're going to go swimming? No. <laughs> Triathlons are definitely not my thing. I just like doing the running part, the swimming and In the I'm not cold very... Atlantic. Ooh, God. <laughs> yeah, that is where they swim. So Right. No, no, thank you. The Delaware Ghost Hunters lead paranormal investigations of the fort. Ghost Hunters, the TV version, visited for a Halloween special in 2008. During that episode, the team caught the thermal image of a man peeking around the corner at them. And I think I do remember this because I thought that that was so cool to see that on a thermal camera. I think I do, too. Yeah, I mean, that would have been, when did they start? 2006 or 7? So it was really early. I remember what year it was. But yeah, I seem to remember that. One of them also had his jacket pulled so hard that it pulled him backwards. The spirits of Confederate soldiers have been seen in many areas. One such place is on the parade grounds and under the ramparts. They are often seen running. So I don't know if this is because they were doing it for exercise and it's something residual or if these were guys who were escaping. I'm not sure. A visitor to the fort captured a Confederate soldier on camera standing in an archway. Sounds of moaning and clanging chains are heard in the dungeon. And in case people are like, well, what, what are you talking about this dungeon at the fort? That's what they called all of the casements and some of the ammunition areas that they started using as prisons. Gotcha. Kind of cells. That's basically the dungeon. So it's not like they had a specific area that this is the dungeon area here. Yeah, it was just converted. Yeah, it was just these different rooms that were that way. And when you see this on video, it it is kind of creepy looking down there because it's so dark and you're thinking, oh, it's a dungeon and it's dark. So you can see why people get the feeling that it might be haunted. These sounds could be the imprisoned soldiers, or it could be one of the pirates who were kept here before the Civil War started. A park ranger once saw the apparition of a pirate dressed in a green silk shirt and white silk pants looking out of a window. General James Archer was a Confederate general during the American Civil War, and he had a role in many major battles from Harper's Ferry to Fredericksburg to Shepherdstown to Chancellorsville to Gettysburg. Archer came from a wealthy military family. But he did not seem automatically meant for that life in that he was a very slight man. In school, they called him Sally for this reason. I wonder how many fights he got in. (laughs) Kind of like the boy named Sue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They were trying to toughen him up a little bit. He graduated from law school and went into practice. But this all changed when the Mexican-American War erupted. He served bravely doing that and moved to Texas after the war where he ended up fighting a duel. He went back to his law practice, but decided that he preferred the military and was stationed in the Pacific Northwest. When the Civil War erupted, he resigned his commission and went south, where he joined the Confederate Army. In 1862, he was given command over three Tennessee regiments. His men gave him a different nickname, the Little Gamecock, because although he was built small, he was a fierce fighter. The thing that would prove to be his downfall was sickness. Starting in September 1862, Archer was so weak that he had to direct his troops from an ambulance. He would recover slightly and lead his troops to victory in a couple more battles, but the summer heat of 1863 took their toll, and by the time his regiments arrived in Gettysburg, he was very ill. The Iron Brigade pushed his men back, and Archer sought cover in a thicket, too exhausted to continue. It was here that he was captured by a Union soldier named Patrick Maloney. Archer was sent to Fort Delaware. There he made plans to escape with the other men. 
They had heard of a plan to ship 600 of them to Morris Island, where they would be used as human shields to get the Confederates to stop shelling the fort there. Jesus. I think they thought, well, if we have a bunch of their prisoners here, they won't shell the fort anymore. Oh, my word. So when they heard that, they're like, let's get out of here. And this is something that I read over and over again that Archer did a lot there. So this wasn't just his only escape plan. It seemed to me like he was doing it a lot, always trying to get out. And indeed, many of them would end up there and a few were starved to death because they would not pledge allegiance to the United States. So it was kind of like, unless you pledge allegiance to the United States, we're not going to feed you. And they did die. And I believe they have some kind of a memorial down in Morris Island for these. And they're called the Immortal 600, I believe is what they're titled. Legend claims that Archer was imprisoned under Fort Delaware in the tunnels for a couple of years. Now, every video that I watched, I didn't see anything about tunnels under Fort Delaware. And you know why I don't think that there are tunnels under Fort Delaware? Because of what it was built on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing was sinking. They had to put it on all these piles just to keep the, the top part of it up. So right. I could be wrong. If anybody's visited Fort Delaware and you've seen tunnels there, let us know. But I was like, I don't understand how there could possibly be any tunnels underneath this fort. The story that I read then also said that him being down in those tunnels had driven him mad. You know me, I like to get to the bottom of things. So this did not happen. He actually was exchanged for a union prisoner. He returned to the fight, but eventually did die from his illness in October 1864. He was buried in Hollywood Cemetery, which we have covered in one of our Haunted Cemetery episodes. I don't recall which one. Because of the legend, people claim that his spirit haunts the tunnels under the fort. This spirit is said to be shy and rarely is seen, which means it could be another spirit. And again, I don't think there's any tunnels, so I'm not sure what they're talking about him haunting or where he would be. But he didn't even die at the fort, so... I don't think he's haunting it in any way. Prisoners are not the only ones haunting the fort. Guards are here as well. There was an Italian immigrant who joined the Union Army named Private Stefano. He died when he slipped on some wet stairs that he was running down. He broke his neck and cracked his skull. His apparition is seen often near the stairs. He appears most often when people are talking about his story near the stairs. He also will appear sometimes when people call out his name at the stairs. There's a spirit that likes to clean in the mess hall, and that person's more than welcome to come to our house. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) There was apparently a mantelpiece in here at one time, and that is what he seems to be cleaning. When he exits, he goes through a bricked-up door. He is thought to have been a servant that is carrying on in the afterlife in a residual manner. Right next to the mess hall is the kitchen, and it has its own ghost. This spirit is a female, and she walks into the kitchen and checks all the equipment. Some reenactors had an interesting experience with her. They were making soup in the kitchen as a demonstration of life in the fort, and the ghost suddenly appeared and smiled, checked the equipment, and checked the soup. She stirred it for a while. She must have seemed real because the volunteers weren't scared until she walked through a wall. (laughs) That that might clue you in a little bit. (laughs) I still have to wonder, you know, if you and I, let's say, are volunteering at this fort, and they're like, okay, you're going to pretend like you're making or you are making soup, just like they would have back then. So we're making the soup and this other woman comes walking in and all of a sudden grabs a spoon and starts stirring it. I mean, would I think we'd kind of be like, I'm sorry, are you a volunteer too? Did <laughs> exactly. they tell you to come in and here and you start are who? <laughs> <laughs> stirring the soup? Too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps this woman had once been a cook at the fort. And I have to think it would be kind of a little unsettling, I would think, to be a woman uh, as a cook at a fort full of men. I would imagine so. I do know that there were a lot of female cooks in prisons that we have visited, and that's part of the reason why they would have just that little window that would kind of open up enough that they could push the food through to the prisoners for her protection. 
I don't know if she had some kind of protection here at the fort, too, or what. A member of the team was taking a group through when they heard a noise above near the stove. A metal item that had been sitting on the stove had been picked up and tossed on the floor. In the area where the guns are located, people have been poked and pulled. A local TV station visited in 2009, and they captured a flashlight turning on by itself, and it also rolled a small distance as it sat in the middle of a table. A girl on the same tour told the reporter that something had poked her on the elbow. She turned to ask her boyfriend if he had done it, but before she could, the tour guide said that the spirits like to poke people in this area. And she hollered out, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I just had it happen. A woman named Chris Polo told station WBOC, all of a sudden the oil lamp slides across the windowsill and crashes to the floor right next to me. I ended up with glass all over. I won't go back up in there. It scared me too badly. It really did. A guy named Scott Debsky heard noises his first night on the island. He said, a short time later, we heard dogs barking and were a mile from land. There are no dogs on the island, but there were several years ago. So I don't know if those are just residual barks or if some dogs died on the island. Maybe they're buried there. Right, maybe. Reminds me of when you heard the dog whining in Waverly. Yes, have no doubt that there are animal ghosts. A guy named Kyle McMahon joined Diamond State Ghost Investigators for an overnight at the fort in 2018. They got some K2 activity, specifically when they asked for spirits to light it up. The group later hears a voice coming from upstairs audibly. A flashlight turned on by itself in the mess hall. This group said that the cook's name is believed to be Susan. When one of the guys asked if she would cook him something because he was hungry, the flashlight turned on by itself. They heard disembodied footsteps and more audible voices in conversation. Conditions at this prison camp were far better than in many other prisons, but many people still died here. Their spirits still seem to remain. Is Fort Delaware haunted? That That is for you to decide. Kelly, we'd love to have people check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We had people share a couple of interesting things in the crew that I wanted to share with everybody. First, there was Denise. She wrote, it's funny. I'd never considered myself as having had paranormal experiences until I started listening and started remembering different things that have happened to me over the years. I won't dump them all on you all at once, but here's my favorite. When I was in high school, my grandpa wanted me to be a nurse. Being a teenager, I knew better and eloped. Fast forward a decade and divorce, 1993. My then three-year-old daughter and I were playing peekaboo and pretending to scare each other. On my turn to jump out and go boo, I got the scare. Standing about six feet behind her was my grandpa, still dressed in his old farm clothes. Grandpa died in 1986. Within the following year, I found a job at a small nursing home as an aide. The place was family-owned and operated. The dad was the administrator. The mom was the director of nursing. The son was something else in administration. If we got busy, the family would glove up and help truly a family that cared. That was the start of a now 25-plus year career in nursing. Anyone that has worked in nursing knows that kind of nursing home is rare. Had I gone anywhere else, I probably would not have continued in my beloved nursing field. I firmly believe Grandpa came back to scare me straight and sent me to that particular place. Thank you, Grandpa, for knowing me better than I knew myself. I love that. I do. And then Stephanie wrote in the crew, I'm at my parents' house spending the weekend with them, my sisters, and Grandma. My sister took me to the local cider mill, and we were talking as sisters do. This is what she told me about our grandpa. Monday morning, my grandma found him in the basement of their house at 9.30 a.m. My grandpa was still warm but unresponsive. She and the paramedics tried CPR and all that for about a half an hour. 
My grandpa was a handyman and he'd often be at my parents' house fixing something. Well, he had changed the battery in my parents' kitchen clock the day before he passed away. After coming back home from helping and being with my grandma while waiting for the funeral home, my mom looked up at the clock and it had stopped at 8.49 that morning. I had the chills. He had just put in a brand new battery literally the day before. So mom has seen a ghost before and believes in the paranormal as I do. We both believe he reached out. My sister had done a similar thing after she died, visited me in my dream and was holding my hand when I woke up. I just think this is all so amazing and crazy I had to share. You know, this isn't the first story that we've heard about clocks stopping like that as a family member's visiting. No, it actually happens quite often. Yeah, so that's very cool. Thank you for sharing that, both of you ladies. Shelby had written to us and she wanted to say thank you both for all your hard work with the podcast and to thank us for being as interactive as we are with Facebook and Instagram. And she knew that we've done some topics that aren't necessarily specific to haunted locations. You know, we've done the gin and witches in America, that kind of thing. So she's like, hey, would you ever think about doing ghost animals? I'd love that. You know that. (laughs) I know. And so what I told her is we have uh, about a handful, I think, of bonus episodes that we've done over for the executive producers that are about ghost animals. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Ginger Galloway for raising your donation. We're going to be moving you into a garden tomb. Kelly, we've had Ginger for quite a while, so um, moving her body is going to be a delicate thing. Yikes. Glove (laughs) up, Mort. (laughs) Decay don't bother me none. And also, Scott Booker has raised his donation. We're going to be moving him into a grand mausoleum. Oh, Scott, or should I call you Scooter? I have a beautiful mausoleum that I'm designing for you, complete with Wi-Fi so you can continue to help with research from in there. Excellent. And thank you so much for supporting HGB, you guys. You really do bring the show to everyone else. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. One will find a muscleman's apple sart. Jesus, here we go already. And the fort's breast high wall. And the fort's breast high wall. Confederate Brigitte. The death boat. Sorry. Oh my god! I am just totally seeing a show now where you've got like zombies (laughs) or dead, like you know, skeletons that are 
falling apart and half rotten, wandering around the boat, like falling in love with each other. With your cruise director, Creepy Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody said I look like a dead Vincent Price. There you go. For my Halloween costume. So we would be perfect as their, um, I could be the captain. I could drive a boat. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Scary. Iceberg, right ahead. (laughs) Crikey! Well, we don't have to worry about anybody dying on this boat. They're already dead. (laughs) It's the death boat of tourism. (laughs) His apparition is seen often near the stairs. He appears most often when people are talking about his story near the stairs. He also will appear sometimes when people call out his name at the stairs. That's a lot of stairs. Death, exciting and new, come aboard, Mort's expecting you, and death, life's sweetest reward, let it float. We all float down here. (laughs) Let's just keep going. Who cares that we're laughing through it? Yes. Okay. The death boat soon will be making another run. The death boat promises something for everyone. Set a course for adventure, your mind on a necromance. And death. Let's do that one more time. And death won't hurt anymore. It's inevitable. Knocking at your door. Yes, death. Welcome aboard. It's death. Especially in, especially in my voice. Oh my God! Does this mean I get to be dark? Cool. I get all the chicks.